Welcome. Welcome to the 42nd Mary McMillan Lecture. Before introducing this year's lecture, I would like to take a few moments to remember Mary McMillan and share her legacy with you. Molly, as her friends knew her, was an educator, author, and leader in the field of physical therapy. After completing a bachelor's degree at the College of Physical Culture in Liverpool, England, Molly worked with children under the tutelage of Sir Robert Jones. In 1918, Molly was assigned to Walter Reed General Hospital as a head reconstruction aide and helped to found the U.S. Army's first organized physical therapy department. Later that year, she was granted a leave of absence from the Army to participate in the Reed College Emergency Training Program for Reconstruction Aids. Graduates of this and other emergency programs helped handle the peak load that happened after World War I. During this time, Molly prepared the manuscript for her book, Massage and Therapeutic Exercises, the first book published by a physical therapist in the United States. On January 15, 1921, an association of physical therapists was established during an organizational meeting held at Keene's Chop House in New York City. And Mary McMillan was elected the first president of the American Women's Physical Therapeutic Association. The Mary McMillan Lecture Award was established to acknowledge and honor a member of the association who has made distinguished contributions to the profession and to provide the recipient with an opportunity to share his or her achievements and ideas through a lecture presented at our annual conference. As you came in, I hope you took a moment to review the honor roll of previous Mary McMillan lecturers. This list includes many of the best and brightest among us who have, through their professional contributions, inspired us to think in ways and aspire to new heights we've never dreamed of. It is my sincere privilege to ask all Mary McMillan lecturers in attendance this morning to please stand and be recognized for their wonderful achievement. It is now my great pleasure and personal honor to introduce to you Dr. Gail Jensen as the 42nd Mary McMillan Lecturer. Dr. Jensen currently holds a number of positions at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. She is the Dean of the Graduate School, Associate Vice President for Research in Academic Affairs, Professor of Physical Therapy in the School of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and faculty associate at the university's Center for Policy and Ethics. Dr. Jensen's research interests can, they simply span many areas, including those of clinical reasoning and development of expertise, qualitative research, interprofessional education and assessment. 
She has served on several editorial boards and is currently deputy editor for Physiotherapy Research International, associate editor for Physiotherapy Theory and Practice, and is on the editorial board for qualitative health research. Dr. Jensen is author or co-author of over 60 publications in peer-reviewed journals and has co-authored eight books, including Leadership in Interprofessional Health Education and Practice, published in 2009, Expertise in Physical Therapy Practice, the second edition, published in 2007, and Educating for Moral Action, a source book, a source book in Health and Rehabilitation at Ethics, which was published in 2005. Currently, she is working on preparing a third edition of the book she co-authored with Dr. Catherine Shepard, The Handbook on Teaching for Physical Therapists. Dr. Jensen's clinical practice focus has been orthopedics, and she has served as a member of the academic faculty for the Kaiser Permanente Hayward Fellowship Program in Advanced Orthopedic Manual Therapy in Hayward, California, and did so for over 25 years. In addition to her academic and clinical prowess, Dr. Jensen has been active in her state chapter of APTA and sought to make a difference in the lives of neighbors in Nebraska. She chairs the Ethics Committee for the Nebraska Physical Therapy Association, and she has been principal or co-investigator for four federal interdisciplinary grants that focus on partnerships working with Native American communities in Northeast Nebraska. Most appropriately, Dr. Jensen has received accolades for her many contributions to the physical therapy profession and her service to APTA. She is a recipient of the American Physical Therapy Association's Golden Pen Award and Lucy Blair Service Award. And in 2002, she was named a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the APTA. Dr. Jensen holds a Bachelor's of Science degree in Education from the University of Minnesota she received her Master's of Arts in Physical Therapy from Stanford University and her Doctorate in Educational Evaluation also from Stanford University. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Gail Jensen to the stage. Thank you. I hope you feel the same when I finish. <laughs> uh, th this is an anxiety-producing event, but I have to share that my anxiety was mostly about my makeup, which I have not had on since 1985. <laughs> so, <laughs> so be prepared. <laughs> okay, now I'm ready to start. As all of the previous McMillans sitting here before me know, there is nothing, nothing more humbling than to be recognized by your peers. I, deep, I am deeply grateful to receive this honor. I'm also mindful of the rich tradition and legacy of our colleagues before us, who with such unity, purpose, and courage laid the foundation for the profession. As Mary McMillan said, who wants a soft job anyway? It's the hard knocks that bring out the best timber in us. 
Collaboration, both within physical therapy and across disciplines, is part of who I am and my work. So the ideas that I share with you today are part of a shared web of collaboration with key mentors, colleagues, students, patients, graduates, and families from whom I have learned and I continue to learn. I am particularly honored to be giving this lecture during APTA President Scott Ward's tenure. Dr. Ward is a president whom I believe skillfully brings together our worlds of practice, education, and research. I am grateful to my colleagues in the Nebraska chapter who coordinated my nomination, Teresa Cochran and Karen Paschal, to those of you who wrote such wonderful, gracious letters of support for my nomination, and to my dear friends and colleagues at Creighton University Department of Physical Therapy, many who are here today, uh, my heartfelt thanks to a fellow Minnesotan and mentor and my philosophical choreographer, Ruth Pertillo. When I first received news of many Mary McMillan lecturers reached out with their congratulations and advice, last year's McMillan lecturer, Andrew Guccione, kept saying, Gail, this is a great gift. It, it's such an opportunity to reflect on your career. At times, it did seem like the gift that kept giving, giving, <laughs> giving me fear and anxiety. I kept waiting for the joy, the amazement, and wonder. Ruth Portillo said, uh, well, kid, my advice is stay close to home. And I thought, boy, does that mean I can give this talk virtually? <laughs> Rebecca Craig said, well, take my advice. Just don't do any edits the night before. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I began this journey by reading all of the previous Macmillan lectures. As I read them, I could not resist to engage in a process of open coding, uh, as each lecture carries the unique character of the person and an underlying theme that pervades each one. Uh, those of you, if you don't like your category up front here, you're, we can talk about that later. <laughs> Trailblazing. These are the early pioneers who reflected on our past and our strong tie to our historical roots of physical therapy. Elson, Worthingham, Decker, Vogel, Kaiser, and Lemkel. Educational transformation. The educational transformers may cross dimensions of the profession, but they have a strong underlying message for educational change and trans or transformation. Singleton, Hurt, Daniels, Moore, Johnson, Pinkston, Barnes, May, and Shepard. Integration. The integrators take a more integrated change message across the dimensions of education, practice, and research. Blair, Hislop, Carlin, Watts, Magestro, and Bartlett. Patient-centered. These lectures, again, cross dimensions of the profession, yet then return to what is most central, patient care. Rude, Knott, Kendall, Voss, Wood, and Paris. Knowledge generation. These lectures also may cross dimensions of the profession, but one can sense a strong underlying passion for building on the knowledge base of the profession. Soderberg, Sarman, Campbell, Rothstein, Wolf, Duncan, Craig, Delito, and Winstein. Now the most difficult category, the macro view. This category is seen in lectures that have a large underlying core message. Blood, Michaels, Pertillo, Moffat, and Guccione. The gift of this lectureship is it, it's an opportunity to engage in a year's worth of personal critical reflection as you look at your lived experience in crafting what you hope is a lasting message. 
Over and over this year, I have felt, as I worked on this lecture, at my innermost core and such deep humility and pride in my profession as a physical therapist. They say that while you can take the girl out of Minnesota, you can't take the Minnesota out of the girl. I owe much to the late Helen Scowlin in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Minnesota for starting me on a physical therapy career path. I've been teaching junior high for two years and decided this was not my lifetime calling. I remember Ms. Scowlin, my freshman advisor, saying, if I ever wanted advice on physical therapy, to give her a call. She took me to lunch at the faculty club and gave me the following directives. Here are the courses you need to take. Here are the entry-level master's degree programs you need to apply to. Oh, and by the way, you'll have to leave Minnesota. I interviewed for the Stanford Physical Therapy Program in Chicago, my second time in an airplane, my first ever taxi ride. Yeah, it sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I remember to this day responding to the classic interview question, why do you want to be a physical therapist? I said that I thought teaching was central to what physical therapists did. When I arrived at Stanford, I was quickly marked as that Minnesotan who wore flannel shirts and jeans, who said nerve root instead of root, <laughs> who asked when we were going to learn about the Kenny Hot Packs, since they were still used in Minnesota from the days of polio, and could not understand why you call something a lake on the Stanford campus that only had water in it in the springtime. <laughs> Those of you who know me well know I have many interests, perhaps too many. There is a verse from the Greek poet Archelaus that says, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. I am much more like a fox. Uh, my experience and interests have ranged across many areas in our profession, from clinical work, teaching in orthopedic physical therapy and manual therapy, to behavior science, qualitative research, educational evaluation and assessment, professional education, ethics, interprofessional education and practice, and higher education and administration. Today, I invite you to join me while I depart from ranging across the field to pursue some hedgehog behavior, digging deeper into what I believe is fundamental to what we do in education and practice, learning. We will go down the hedgehog hole for a critical reflective anal anal sorry, analysis of learning as a threshold concept for the profession. A threshold concept is similar to a portal or a window that provides us with a new way of thinking about something. In teaching, we see threshold concepts as those that are necessary to learn in order to more fully understand a subject. For example, once you understand that patient function is a critical threshold concept in physical therapy, you can never go back to just thinking about performing a list of examination procedures. Threshold concepts are typically transformative, integrative, irreversible, and disciplinary. In physical therapy, learning is a concept that we take for granted, yet it is fundamental to our work as physical therapists and physical therapist assistants, regardless of setting. My hope is that as a consequence of comprehending learning as a threshold concept, we will have an in, a transformed internal view and renewed look at learning what learning can do for our profession. We'll begin by exploring learning for practice, then move to learning from practice, and I will conclude with a reflective look at the profession as a learning organization. Along the way, we will dig deeper into the meanings of concepts and theories 
For those of you who know me, I can't refuse to talk about a nice concept or theory. So. so what is learning? Learning is defined as the knowledge acquired by the systematic study in any field of scholarly application, the act, process of acquiring knowledge, skill, the modification of behavior through practice, training, or experience. Well-known cognitive psychologist Jerome Bruner said, the single most important thing about human beings is that they learn. Lee Shulman said it simply, it is getting the inside out. In other words, teachers are responsible for understanding what students have already learned in getting the inside out then in designing learning experiences for learners in which the knowledge or skill is both enriched and elaborated through social interaction as they make these ideas their own. What learning really counts in learning for practice? Let me share from my lived experience. I graduated from Stanford University's entry-level master's degree program in physical therapy in 1978. In my 30 years in physical therapy education, across five different educational programs, there are still elements of my original learning experience at Stanford that I've yet to see captured in a stated physical therapy curriculum. How can I say that? Certainly knowledge has changed dramatically across all contributing fields, even anatomy. I would argue that all of us sitting here carry with us many implicit elements of the implicit curriculum. This is the collection of values, beliefs, and expectations transmitted through knowledge, language, and everyday interactions between students and faculty, all part of the learning environment that has a profound effect on professional formation. As I reflect back on my experiences, these were key elements that have had a lasting effect on me. The fundamental importance of the integration of a broad array of sciences, physical, biological, and behavioral, in the practice of physical therapy with the patient and family at the center of that process. The critical importance of inquiry skills, knowledge creation, and thinking beyond patient care to how organizations and systems work. The importance of creativity, innovation, and risk-taking in learning and program design. What it truly means to be a professional and our societal obligations to fulfill a social contract the respect for legacy with the inherent value in the wisdom and experience of at those who have come before us. Where did I learn this? It was not just in the knowledge demands. It was also in the learning experience, the community of learners, the expectation for quality performance, along with the permission for creativity, the opportunity for imagination, and the acceptance and support for being tactfully critical of what is and bold about what could be. I would not be standing here today without the influence of those role models and mentors at Stanford University. Helen Blood, Barbara Kent, Cindy Moore, Catherine Shepard, Terry Sanford, Carol Jo Titchener, and Linda Van Heusen. The curriculum was never focused on meeting minimal standards of accreditation or adapting to social expectation, but was constantly pushing boundaries and asking what should be in the social reconstruction of curriculum in meeting future societal needs. We have moved rapidly in our educational transformation and level of degree required for entry into practice, driven most recently by market forces, often with neither enough reflective thought 
nor enough evidence through educational research on which dimensions of professional education really matter. I offer these points of challenge for us as we think about learning for practice stage of professional education. An assumption we need to comprehend as a central component of practice is that we rely on human performance for our outcomes. Unlike carpenters, we are working with people, not wood. So we need to see people to work, we need people to work with us in collaboration. Professions such as ours, whose practices deal with human improvement, have the challenge of improving skills, coping with feelings, facilitating behavior change, and broadening the understanding of essential caregivers. As practitioners, we cannot succeed without the patient working with us to meet these challenges. In other words, learning is central. In professional education, we have human performance challenges at two levels, education and practice. We are engaged in a process of facilitating learning and human performance as our students develop knowledge, skills, and abilities that can be demonstrated in their ability to work successfully with patients, families, and caregivers in their practice. Human improvement, as I said, will not move forward unless the patient or student will work together with us toward the success or outcome. Client commitment from either that student or patient also brings with it an element of uncertainty. How do we mobilize commitment? Carpenters do not need wood to engage or commit to a task. But we are different. We need engagement. We as educators generally do a more than adequate job of assessing manual procedures and skills and technique. We do far less performance-based assessment of the integrated communication and listening skills, competent handling skills, tailoring of exercise, and designing learning and teaching strategies that will likely succeed with all different kinds of patients. Why we have accomplished a great deal in enhancing our curricula and establishing our growing knowledge base in the area of movement science, motor learning, and motor control theory, we have done far less in incorporating and understanding the role of social, cognitive, social-cultural theories of learning. The analytical and theoretical skills of movement analysis alone will not necessarily suffice when it comes to human performance. We have to recognize the critical and central importance of human behavior and well-crafted interventions that are soundly based on applied theoretical constructs and evidence. This is not just about good communication skills or being a good listener. But it is the skillful integration of successful teaching and learning strategies tailored to the particular patient or family, as we observed in our study of expert practice. Our research team, Jan Guire, Lori Hack, myself, and Kay Shepard, described elements of expert practice that included powerful and unique integ integration of the analytical skills of movement analysis, along with phenomenological understanding of patient meaning and perspective, all of which are used in the delivery of skilled teaching and learning as critical elements in our practice. Our challenge in the profession today is to find better ways to integrate all dimensions of learning into our curricula. We have a long history as a profession of focusing on the task to be done. We are drawn the, to the profession because we like to get things done. We like to move. We like to help others move. 
We generally do not want to engage in deep philosophical conversation about assumptions or ways of making meaning. Education, too, has a long history of focusing on efficiency and measurement. The tendency to see behavioral specificity through identification of behavioral or instructional objectives as the foundation of all learning without finding ways to integrate a broader understanding of the behavior in the context of learning, the learning experience, has been a point of criticism since John Dewey's time. In physical therapy, we still tend to be fascinated with behavioral objectives, and we trust that the accountability of a rational system of matching, alignment, and mapping of those objectives across a curriculum is an absolutely non-negotiable piece of evidence that ensures student learning. Instructional objectives, performance objectives, and behavioral objectives are all very valuable necessary tools, but they are not sufficient in representing the full extent of learning, particularly learning in preparation for uncertainty, which is central to the readiness of doctorally prepared therapists. We are fooling ourselves if we think creating grading rubrics for all of our assessment ensures student learning. Dewey argued that we often fail to distinguish between the application of a standard and the making of a judgment. Standards, like objectives, tend to themse lend themselves to physical conditions and quantities, but not in situations where one needs to make a judgment about quality of work or soundness of an argument. If we agree with the assumption that professional education is not simply learning to apply knowledge and skill to practice, but also to make judgments, often in uncertain conditions, then we need to expand our approach to learning to facilitate creativity and innovation. While the continued emphasis on the assessment of student learning and accountable, accountability of performance is critical, we must make certain to work towards using a broad array of assessment tools that are authentic, represent the performance of therapists, and provide students with opportunities to grapple with uncertainty, not just look for surety. How do we prepare students for the uncertainty of practice? By moving beyond critical thinking and reflection on action. All of us somewhere in our curriculum materials make reference to critical thinking. Critical thinking, it's seen as the mantra of higher education. But it can become more of a slogan than an educational outcome that is fully understood and assessed. Critical thinking is typically seen in the analysis process that develops general propositions, patterns of argument. You weigh positive, negative evidence. It's important in making those clinical judgment skills, but it is insufficient for approaching situations that are complex and uncertain. In these complex and uncertain situations, it is the reflective ability to understand the context, identify what values may be at risk, and understand the meanings that others see in the situation that is critical. This reflective ability is best learned by moving beyond reflection on action to more critical self-reflection on students' thinking about their thinking, their metacognitive skills, their ability to self-regulate or self-monitor, 
We need to develop teaching and learning tools that help educators dig more deeply to gain insight into the mind of the learner through having the learner show his or her work and the thinking process that lies behind any answer. In digging more deeply into student learning and the development of abilities to handle uncertainty, we will find Jerome Bruner's work particularly useful. He describes two patterns of thinking. Analytical, the dominant pattern, where thinking, things, and events are somewhat detached from everyday life as we look for general patterns of cause and effect. And the narrative, where significance is found in understanding the context of meaningful interaction. The analytical approach to thinking has strong ties to academic disciplines and is quite visible in what we value in our curriculum. This is very much the predominant way we look at the application of evidence to practice. Can we link the application of an intervention with a successful measured outcome? We also know from practice that the narrative approach, understanding the context and lived experience of the patient, reading the patient, is critical in designing successful physical therapy interventions. Whether they recognize it or not, therapists gain insight into the world of the patient through narrative thinking. Therapists tend to think about and remember the stories of their patients. We were all told to go to the Capitol Hill and tell stories about patients. Just think about your most memorable patient, why you remember him or her, what you remember, and what you learned. Why is the story so powerful? It's because it allows you to represent the unfolding of the case with the meaning, making sense of the patient, their signs, their symptoms, together with your analytical knowledge. While the narrative mo mode is strongly connected to the humanities and arts, it is present on a daily basis in practice situations, but often tacitly. Generally, narrative thinking gets little respect, and in physical therapy, it gets very little respect. We can see this most clearly in our continued strong focus on information processing and deductive thinking in clinical reasoning. What do, what do we do to facilitate the development of students' narrative thinking skills or their ability to handle uncertainty and gain insight into their thinking when there is not one right answer? Bruce Greenfield and I argued in a 2010 physical therapy article that there's an important and critical role for helping students develop tools of phenomenology as a strategy for developing their narrative thinking skills. By this we mean helping students formulate questions that are not only driven by filling in their evaluation structure, but also working to understand what the patient is experiencing and the meaning and perspectives they hold. This comes through designing learning experiences that engage students in thick descriptions of their experiences and those of their patients. Thick descriptions are narratives that describe in rich detail the unfolding of events and human interactions. I believe the one most powerful curricular tool we have for facilitating students' ability to explore meaning through narrative uh, thinking and reasoning and engaging in that process of critical self-reflection and grappling with uncertainty is the teaching of ethics. I am not talking about applying the code of ethics to patient cases. Those of us who teach in the area of ethics, we know the pain. The point <laughs> we know the pain of students saying they are good moral people and a fine character and there is nothing more that you can teach them. 
I have had many, many conversations with my colleagues who teach ethics, and we agree that our learning goals in these courses are more about handling ambiguity, uncovering meaning, and grappling with uncertainty when there may not be one right answer. I have found in exploring student reflections on their thinking during a standardized patient interview centered on ethics that I am more most concerned about those students who are extremely confident, who think they are excellent communicators. On the other hand, students who express some frustration with handling the uncertainty of the situation or having to change course from what they thought they were going to do when they first entered the room, these students are right where they need to be. Here is my most treasured student self-assessment. When I started your ethics course, I knew I would not like it. I hate classes like this. <laughs> my background is as a science at the cellular level where I look for the right or wrong answer. Over the course of the semester, I have learned that in many cases there's not a certain right or wrong answer, and the answers seem to lead to more questions. I have learned so much, not about cases, but about myself. Much of this I cannot explain in words. Your class has changed the way I look at many situations, and this is for the better. That's a keeper. <laughs> the academic setting does well in training the analytical skills, but we have a need for purposeful development of students' habits of mind, where students can bring narrative thinking and reasoning skills to help them understand purpose and meaning that is so critical to patient care. I will close this section where I began with a return to the central importance of professional formation as a transformative aspect of learning. My own case is evidence, as my Stanford experience set me on a professional journey that I never could have imagined. The mission of the institution and the interactions with the communities of learners, faculty and students, places a lasting imprint on the student. My path into an academic career began with doors that were opened for me by Dr. K. Shepard. In 1978, Dr. Shepard's parting gift to all of her students in her teaching seminar was a key ring that we might use for our first, uh, to put keys for our first teaching job. They're here. I still carry my office keys on this key ring. Kay is a wise and talented mentor who cannot be with us today, but she is certainly visible in my thinking, my work, my spirit, and my heart. If we believe that we facilitate professionalism or entry into a doctoring profession only through putting in place learning experiences such as a white coat ceremony or reciting a professional oath, we will be sorely disappointed. It is the deeper understanding of what it means to be a professional, our responsibilities and obligations to society, and the true meaning of a social contract that needs to be more fully developed in our educational programs. The view of the professional has to be about meeting those societal needs, not meeting our own needs. Students and faculty alike need to understand that autonomy is not something we claim, but it is a privilege granted to us by society through recognition of our services. We need to help students develop a deeper sense of social responsibility that moves beyond service learning and volunteer experience to understanding the broader social and structural forces that contribute to health disparities. 
One of the hallmark attributes we identified in our study of expert physical therapists was their deep respect for patients, demonstrated by withholding of judgment and willingness to take action that would make a difference in the patient's outcome. A critical aspect of professional formation, consistent with Ruth Pertillo's clarion call for the profession, it is the tilling of the soil and the digging deeper that facilitates development of professionals who are not complicit but who understand the concept of moral courage and what it means to be a moral agent. When I started my doctoral program at Stanford, I was assigned just by accident to Lee Shulman. As he had previous experience working with health professionals, most notably his well-known collaborative work on medical problem solving, his work, writing, and personal support of my career continues to have a profound effect on me, from my passion for theory and conceptual models to the role of qualitative research in exploring and understanding meaning and context, particularly in practice settings. He shared with me that he had spent much of his career focused on experimental and correlational studies that still had not answered some of the most perplexing questions he had about teaching and learning. So I had better be prepared to develop a broader array of research tools that included qualitative methods and also become a better writer. He thought I was a bad writer. Uh, <laughs> reading Lee Shulman's work is much like reading Helen Hislop's writing. Every sentence is beautifully crafted with a depth of meaning. He formed his doctoral students well in translating his passion for learning. Shulman is well known for his deep respect for the wisdom of practice. As he eloquently describes, the challenge is to get inside the heads of practitioners, to see the world as they see it, then to understand the man manner in which experts construct their problem spaces, their definitions of the situation, thus permitting them to act as they do. The learning embedded in the wisdom of practice is perhaps our most dynamic yet under-investigated area in physical therapy. Learning from practice through reflecting on practice demonstrates the second characteristic of a threshold concept, that learning is both integrative and an integral aspect of our practice. Our tendency to divide our professional worlds into academic and clinical is a separation we cannot afford to continue. We need continuity and coherence in planning professional development and learning throughout our careers, from entry into practice early career development to advanced practice and clinical specialization and continued competence for practice. The preparation of not only competent but continually competent physical therapists is a responsibility we all share. Catherine Worthingham in 1965 in the second Macmillan lecture reminds us the need for better understanding between the teacher and the practitioner was never more crucial. Physical therapists in the university and in the clinical setting must present a united front with full recognition of their complementary functions and responsibilities. The path between the university and the town must be traveled by both. When the travelers accept their mutual responsibilities, aiding one another in their complementary functions, only then can we say, truly, that physical therapy has emerged as a profession. One of our most urgent needs, thanks, that water was good. 
<laughs> One of our most urgent needs is to be more intentional in the planning and structure for professional learning across academic and clinical worlds. Here we can think about the continued development of professional competencies across a career. I use the, the term competency in the most robust sense, as described by Epstein, that professional competence is not an achievement, but it is contextual, impermanent, and a habit of lifelong learning. Competence represents not just observations of behaviors to be checked off, but is seen in dispositions, that is, in the habitual and judicious use of communication, knowledge, skills, emotions, clinical reasoning, values, and reflection in practice. I would ask, what are our domains of professional of competence across a professional career? What is the trajectory of learning for practice, learning from practice, and continued professional competence in physical therapy? The growth in clinical specialization, advanced practice competencies, and residency and fellowship programs enables us to build a continuum of learning and a robust developmental competencies across this career trajectory. Our growth in residency and fellowship programs demonstrates growing interest in the professional community for advanced study. When we look at the map of residencies and fellowships, need the next slide, there we go. You see the majority of programs around urban centers with a distinct absence in some parts of the current country, including my own, the heartland. While this growth and new opportunities for learning are laudable, I ask these questions. Are we developing advanced practice in response to societal needs? Is there a role for our state chapters to work together with academic programs and clinics in a collective, collaborative dialogue about how best meet the needs of our states? Do we have a plan as a professional organization about planned growth in residencies and fellowships, benchmarks of quality, and the generation of aggregate data on performance and need? I have been involved with the Kaiser Hayward Fellowship in Advanced Orthopedic Manual Therapy for over 25 years. Each year, when I have the opportunity to do a seminar with the therapists in the program, I ask them, what brings you to this program? The consistent response is they became frustrated with continuing education short courses. They wanted a program that would help them with their reasoning and decision-making skills, along with their manual skills. These therapists are coming because of a desire to continue learning so that they can reason with more clarity and enhance their decision-making skills. What are our benchmarks for the development of clinical reasoning and decision-making skills from entry into practice to advanced practice? We have much work to do to make more explicit and intentional the development of clinical reasoning and judgment skills that is needed across one's professional career. In a recent study of physical therapy students, Nicole Christensen found that the learning and practice of students' clinical reason capability is often self-directed, and that there are disconnects between linking a clinical reasoning process to a robust way of thinking and reasoning consistent with a skilled clinician. She urges us to make capability in clinical reasoning a priority in education and practice. I could not agree more. 
While frameworks for clinical reasoning and conceptual models for practice, such as the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health Model, provide a broader conceptual view along with a structure for deeper reflection by students and therapists, it is the more complete understanding of reasoning and judgment process that is most critical in our continued development of clinical knowledge. I am convinced that one of the most important learning outcomes for therapists in programs such as the Kaiser Fellowship Program is the explicit development of their clinical reasoning and metacognitive or self-monitoring skills. The literature is clear that the most important skills held by a professional are those metacognitive skills or habits of mind. We know that as soon as students are back from a clinical experience, the influence of the academic community seems to pale rather rapidly. Students are energized as they have made connections from declarative knowledge, information and facts, to the procedural knowledge, applying knowledge to practice. Practice is where it happens. Communities of practice can be rich in dynamic environments where meaning is created through a network of interrelationships with patients and practitioners through situated learning. Professional or workplace learning involves a process of learning, development of the individual practitioner, and enculturation into a professional group. Novices develop professional skills through observation, supervised practice, mentoring, and coaching. Here is where we need to describe, explore, understand both the explicit and implicit curriculum that is central to teaching and learning in the community of practice. An essential part of all professional education is workplace learning. And in fact, it is seen as one of the most robust environments for ongoing educational research. Central to exploring workplace learning is the broadening our use and understanding of the sociocultural theories of learning and their application to both clinical teaching and the teaching and learning process that is fundamental in patient care. In a recent study on novice development, our research team of Black, Mostrom, Perkins, Ritzline, Hayward, and Blackmer, we found that the clinical environment had a profound influence on novices during that first year of practice and there appeared to be differences between those who had strong mentors and those who did not. The situated learning that is part of the community of practice is powerful and enduring. This is the learning that occurs as novices continue to build their identity through observations, interactions with more experienced practitioners, and reflection. My colleague Elizabeth Mostrom eloquently describes it this way. Who you are becoming shapes what you know or come to know. And what you know shapes who and what you are becoming. Learning in a community of practice involves a novice moving from a more peripheral position to one of legitimate and full participation through involvement, coaching, and being given opportunities. However, we know very little about learning in the communities of practice in physical therapy. What are the attributes of healthy, robust communities where learning is continual and dynamic for all members? While there are many dimensions of our knowledge base in physical therapy, from foundation sciences to clinical and applied sciences, we perhaps overlook or take for granted what might be uniquely ours as physical therapists. One of the elements of our grounded theory work on expert practice in physical therapy is the role of the therapist as a part of the intervention.
If we accept the assumption that the therapist is indeed part of the physical therapy intervention, then we can argue this. There is specific knowledge embedded in the therapist's minds, thoughts, actions that is socially constructed. And I know right now that Jules is listening to me because I said socially constructed. <laughs> we used to argue about this. Socially constructed. Through the interactions of therapists and their patients as the therapists touch, teach, facilitate movement through manual techniques and exercise, and guide their patients through improving function. If we assume that physical therapy interventions are defined by reimbursement guidelines and coding schemes as procedures, modalities, and techniques, we limit our ability to create a dynamic, theoretically responsive knowledge base. To return here again to... You have just the right timing, you guys. It's good. <laughs> to return here again to a question I raised earlier, what is the central role of learning in physical therapy care? What would an integration of motor learning and motor control theory with social, cultural, constructivist theories look like? Here is my own personal story. In her later years, my mother fell, fractured her hip, and experienced a learning complication in her course of rehabilitation. She was unable to successfully conquer the steps of toileting to be able to return to assisted living facility. The rehabilitation team had judged her to be unable to succeed using their traditional verbal commands and a written list of instructions. And no one on the rehabilitation team was willing to step forward and serve as her moral agent. This was the case until a master teacher stepped in and developed the appropriate learning materials, practice, and learning strategies. That master teacher was my sister, who has over 30 years of experience teaching junior high orchestra and holds a master's degree in special education. This is a teaching learning issue that includes components of cognition, motor performance, behavior, self-confidence, social cultural elements, and moral judgment. We need to continue to explore, investigate, and uncover the role of therapeutic exercise movement analysis, and function that occurs within a social context that includes therapist-patient interaction and the social construction of knowledge and learning. We also have to use caution to not see patient learning as merely a challenge of facilitating behavior change that the therapist must try to encourage. It is the full integrated aspect of learning that includes elements of self-efficacy and self-cognitive theory of learning, as well as social-cultural theories of learning. Learners actively construct meaning through observations and interactions with others in a social context through a variety of processes, cognitive, self-regulatory, and reflective processes. The learner's self-efficacy or confidence in his ability to do exercise or follow through with recommendations underlie what he chooses to do or how much effort he invests and how long he will persist in that effort. The temptation to render a judgment that a patient is cognitively challenged, non-adherent, or has no social support becomes an easy way to dismiss our responsibility as collaborative partners in the teaching and learning process with our patients. Hislop reminds us that physical therapy is knowledge, clinical science, 
reasoned application of science to warm and needing human beings. And the humanism is the correlate that must be considered for the science of physical therapy for the profession to meet its social goals. The place of physical therapy is in the stream of patient care, not on the banks. Again, I urge here that the important dimensions of social, cognitive, and cultural learning need to be explored from their current tacit or hidden presence and described and investigated as integral and interrelated dimension of physical therapy practice. Learning as a threshold concept is not only transformative, but integral as it can expose the interrelatedness of learning as central in our practice. The concept of learning organizations has been around for over two decades and provides us with a useful structure within our uh, profession to our organization, the Amer to think about our organization, the American Physical Therapy Association. I'm on the last section here, folks. <laughs> learning organizations are where people expand their capacity to create the results they desire, where new and expansive patterns of thinking are nurtured, and where people are continually learning together to see the whole. We talk about the, the critical importance of individuals engaging in a reflective process, so too with organizations. Organizations need to be generative, something larger than themselves, by being connected to what matters. Learning organizations hold values of humility, set practices for generative conversation and coordinated action, and are always looking at the broader consequences of their actions, not just what is in it for them. What is it that is larger than ourselves and connects the profession to what really matters? It is the recognition, is it the recognition of who we are and what we do? In an APTA fact sheet about physical therapists and physical therapist assistants, it states, physical therapists are health professionals who can diagnose and treat individuals of all ages, from newborns to very old, who have medical problems or other health-related conditions that limit their ability to move and perform functional activities in their daily lives. Do we have a commitment to improving the health of the country? Health. <laughs> health is much more than health care. And in fact, health care has a minor influence on health status and health outcome. Health is strongly influenced by the distribution of resources and social determinants that occur upstream. What is our social responsibility as a professional organization? What are some of the most pressing societal needs? And how might our services best meet those needs? By 2030, over 20% of the population will be over the age of 65. Rural and underserved urban communities struggle to find health professionals. Childhood obesity continues to grow at alarming rates. Close to 25 million children are overweight or obese. Should we be engaged in dynamic reform of our curricular to better meet the needs of society? Six health profession groups, nursing, medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, osteopathy, and public health, recently collaborated on a document, Core Competencies for Interprofessional Collaborative Practice. We were not one of the six health profession groups at the expert panel. One of the four domains of these core competencies is value slash ethics for interprofessional practice based on a foundation of mutual respect and trust. 
As my colleague Dolly Swisher says, how can you build mutual respect and trust across health professions when you use an exclusive process to develop a document that is supposed to be inclusive? That's a good question. <laughs> we have long argued that we are not part of allied health, but that is not how others see us. We have an opportunity here to make a strong moral claim that the lack of any representation of the health professions involved in rehabilitation is a clear marginalization of an important population in the health of the nation that relies on interprofessional teams for care. This kind of claim and organizational voice must be done at the highest level of our profession. We have to broaden our organizational political voice beyond its current prime focus on reimbursement issues. The The pace has quickened for interprofessional education. As healthcare reform is bringing models such as accountable care organizations or healthcare homes that are focused on more coordinated cost-contained care, there is growing impatience with health professions education as we remain predominantly in our silos when our graduates need to be collaboration ready. The document on interprofessional collaborative practice claims that social accountability and social equity are foundational elements necessary to prepare a global health workforce that is much more responsive to actual population health needs in local contexts. As a learning organization, we must ask ourselves, do our students fully understand the detrimental influences of poverty and oppression? and the social determinants of health that are at work in the overall health of society. Is interprofessional collaboration a moral imperative for the profession and for all professions? And if so, what is the role of the APTA? How can we work interdependently and maximize our distributed intelligence for the good of the patient, the community, and society? How do we address growing workforce needs in rural and underserved areas? What is the special role of the physical therapist and the physical therapist assistant in meeting societal needs and distribution of the workforce? When we take these questions seriously, our profession will not be driven by self-interest alone, but will focus on connecting our work to the societal needs, being leaders in demonstrating that good health is a public good. How can we become better stewards of our profession? What I mean by that is how can we actively promote responsible and respectful engagement of our entire professional community? I suggest this as our charter of stewardship as an organization. We can do a better job of opening the circle and embracing our colleagues recognizing the contributions and achievements that re reflect the diversity of talents among colleagues, networking with new colleagues, and making all therapists feel welcome and part of our professional community. When I attend meetings of the American Educational Research Association, I am always struck at the engagement I see across the generation of scholars. We can be more intentional in our understanding our history and fundamental conflicts of the discipline 
respecting the wisdom of our colleagues who have come before us, and making more explicit the recognition that it is upon their shoulders we stand. We can then find ways to continue to learn. As a multi-generational professional community, we can acknowledge that we are not alone. We have collective strength to assume the collective responsibility to judge what ideas are worth keeping, what ideas are undergoing transformation, and which ideas have outlived their usefulness to the profession. It seems a paradox to me that during my time as an educator, one of the most challenging goals for the academic community was to engage in a vision as a learning organization. I remember well completing my PhD in education and going to the education section business meeting. Been well socialized in my doctoral study about the work of the American Educational Research Association and the need for educational research, particularly in the health professions. At the education section business meeting, I suggested it would be a great time for us to set an educational research agenda for PT. Well, my comments didn't spark any continued action or conversation, and in fact, the meeting went right on to more pressing issues such as prerequisites, accreditation, how come we have to move to the master's degree? Yeah. <laughs> Education research is the area of the profession where we have the most need for knowledge generation and evidence, and we have the least to show for it. While we have had continued growth in educational research contributions to our journals, the majority of these studies are small, often focused on a program, or directly related to a dissertation or student work. We have a very difficult time seeing the value, need, and power of aggregate data in educational research for the profession. Here we need to learn from our colleagues engaged in clinical and basic science research. While it is very difficult to find funding for educational research, it also does not require large sums of money, but it does take will, collaboration, careful planning, and persistence. There are ways for us to collaborate in creative and innovative structures that we could build on collaborative center-type work by sharing methods, tools, and as many educational researchers do across this country. This takes a community of scholars focused on their careers who are physical therapists and educational researchers. Think about what we could do as a collective community of scholars in investigating common questions across multiple programs or facilities, generating data that could answer some of the questions instead of arguing for what we think may be best. We could bring more evidence to this deliberative process. In physical therapy education, we also suffer from the Lake Wobegon effect. As we all struggle to agree on any shared benchmarks of ex excellence, we are all above average. <laughs> In the absence of agreed upon standards, others, as US News World Reports, fill the void. We are one of the only health professions that has no formal professional honor society to recognize and promote academic excellence, leadership, and service across the profession from student to professional. Dot Pinkston, in the 25th Macmillan Lecture, sums it up well. Education for the physical therapist, located in institutional environments where the quest for parity for all overshadows the quest for quality for any. If we truly want to continue to transform the profession, we must transform education. You will find consensus on this assertion across all of the Macmillan lectures. 
The newly formed Academic Council of the American Physical Therapy Association provides us much hope for needed leadership in action in physical therapy education. Will Rogers puts it this way, even if you are on the right track, you will get run over if you just sit there. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> my dream is that we will engage in an in-depth exploration and investigation of our signature pedagogy. A signature pedagogy is a characteristic form of teaching and learning that organizes the fundamental ways in which future practitioners of the profession are educated. The signature pedagogy reveals a lot about the personalities, dispositions, and culture of the profession. Through it, students are instructed in the dimensions of the professional work to think, to perform, and to act with integrity. Signature pedagogies are important because they are pervasive. They define what counts as knowledge in the field, how that knowledge is obtained, while at the surface level, we would quickly agree that movement is a central structure in our pedagogy. At a deeper level, the pedagogy contains a set of assumptions about how we best teach our body of knowledge and skilled know-how. This deeper structure is uncovered by codifying the situated learning for professional practice that occurs across academic and clinical settings. At the deepest level, a signature pedagogy includes an implicit moral dimension that comprises a set of professional beliefs, values, and dispositions about the profession. Here, we, we would hope that our moral dimension is, as Pertillo asserts, the role of physical therapy educators is to prepare students to honor the importance of moral courage and learn to exercise judgment based on this virtue. I believe we have such opportunities to be both foxes and hedgehogs, to explore widely and with freedom in describing, codifying the learning that occurs in physical therapy practice through digging deeply into who we are and what we want to be. It is the combination of learning central to movement and function along with the social, cognitive, and cultural aspects of learning that is uniquely physical therapy. Learning is a powerful threshold concept for the profession of physical therapy. We can make learning matter what matters most. I want to recognize key people, that's the end, I want to recognize key people in my, my own personal and professional learning community. First and foremost, for her steadfast support, the most talented teacher, clinician I know, my partner, Judy Gale, 27 years. My standard line here, uh, my family who, who are good friends and my good friends who are family, my sister Judy Elgathan and her husband Ed, my sister-in-law Ann Berardi and her husband Pete Prince, and my dear friend Sherry Clark and Caroline Goulet. I'm indebted to the Creighton School of Pharmacy and Health Professions under the leadership of J. Chris Bradbury for their continued support of my professional identity and access to a very talented graphic artist, Phil Beagle who crafted those photos from Madonna Rehab Center in Lincoln. 
I'm deeply grateful to Marilyn Phillips, my handler, for her continual encouragement and support for this year-long process, convincing me to wear makeup, <laughs> and to Loris Duhit for her magical edits, and finally, Thanks to my uh, contributors in my own professional formation, my research colleagues over the last two decades, Jan Guire, Lori Hack, Kay Shepard, our interprofessional dreamcatcher community of ethicists, and my colleagues on the editorial board of physical therapy who consistently challenged my thinking and broadened my view of the profession forever. And all of the administrators, faculty, students, and graduates, including the Jesuits, who have tolerated my strong will uh, and guided my professional development. Thank you. This is such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gail. As Jules Rothstein once said, we are indeed a most fortunate profession. And we are indeed a most fortunate profession because of people like you, Gail. Thank you. On behalf of the American Physical Therapy Association, I wish to present you with the Mary McMillan Lecture Medallion and a certificate in commemoration of the lecture you have presented today. She just told me her feet were killing her. <laughs> so with that, I will say thank you for attending, and we look forward to seeing you at this event next year in Tampa. <laughs>